have a, a word for us this evening, and uh, I'm, I'm excited to be able to share it with you because I think um, that there's something in here for everybody tonight. And so I, I, I really believe the Lord's going to use this to uh, speak to a, a, a certain area in your life um, as, as we listen to His voice. And I, I hope that... Uh, you know, it's not about the preacher. I hope you know that by now. I hope you understand that it truly is about the Word of God and, and letting God speak to us through His Word. And so I, I hope that when whoever's up here ministering, um, that you're not only listening to the words that are being spoken by the preacher, but also paying attention to what the Lord is, is speaking to your heart as well through uh, his, his Holy Spirit. And so as we work through this, uh, this evening, I, I'm, I'm confident that there's something in here for everyone. Part of my confidence is again, in the fact that it is the word of God. The second part of my confidence is in the fact that I have seven points. And so I, I have a, a feeling that well, at least something is going to touch you, uh, tonight from, uh, these seven points. Um, thankfully, I put them on the, the screen for you tonight, so as we work through them, uh, they'll be up there on the screen for you. You're welcome. You're welcome. Uh, and so uh, I, I, I broke down and made a PowerPoint tonight uh, for you. So, uh, But if, if you would open with your, me, me, me in your Bibles to Ezra, the book of Ezra in the Old Testament, as we continue in the series on worship, where we're at in the storyline is coming to this place of the book of Ezra. We've started in Genesis and we've been tracing uh, the, the theme, pulling on the thread of, of worship all throughout the Bible. And we've been tracking through the, the, the history of God working and the history of redemption as it pertains to worship. Now, as you find, Ezra, I'm going to read the theme verse, if you will, or the thesis verse for the series from Romans chapter 12, because this teaching tonight really ends up dealing with our personal walk with the Lord and our, our obedience to him. And we looked at in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, where Paul writes, I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And so, Father, I pray that you would speak to our hearts tonight, Lord, as we spend time in your word, Lord, that you would give us ears to hear what it is you want us to hear tonight, that you would give us eyes to see what it is you want us to see tonight, Lord, that we would be able by testing to discern what is good and what is acceptable and what is perfect in your sight, and Lord, that we would submit our lives to you in obedience, which the Apostle Paul calls here spiritual Worship that we would live our lives as worship unto you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. And so tonight, as, as we look at where we are in the storyline, you'll recall that a few weeks ago we looked at how the temple, which represented the presence of God on the earth in, in Israel, in Jerusalem, how it had been destroyed how God had brought the armies of Babylon, the armies of Nebuchadnezzar to destroy that temple because of how perverted they had, uh, or how much they had perverted worship. Last week you looked at with Pastor Mark the stories of the, the people who lived in exile and how they, a handful of them, remained faithful to the Lord in their exile, even though they had been carried away to a strange place, even though they were in a strange land, even though they were under a foreign king, foreign customs, foreign ways, that they still submitted themselves to the word of God. They still chose to serve God above all else. 
And so now where we're at in the storyline is now some 70 years since the temple was destroyed. And an issue goes, an issue goes out, a decree goes out uh, for the people of God to be able to return back to the land of Israel and to rebuild the temple and to rebuild the city of Jerusalem. And so tonight in the series is all about rebuilding, rebuilding. And certainly throughout uh, the, the church history and, and church ages, there have been times where there has needed to be restoration in the church, reformation in the church, rebuilding in the church. I think that the church today is in a time like that. Uh, the church in, in our day has undergone a series of attacks, a series of compromises, uh, a series of of events over the last 50 years and 100 years and 150 years where you can see where the church has compromised and is in many ways compared to 150 years ago weak and like Jerusalem lying in ruins. And so the church needs to be rebuilt, rebuilt. Worship needs to be rebuilt. Worship needs to be recovered and restored and and we can look out all throughout church history where there have been times where that has needed to take place. Here in Ezra is, is a specific time. And so we're going to look about these principles of reformation, these principles of rebuilding, these principles of revival. But while we're talking about worship tonight, these principles can equally be applied to other areas of our life. These principles that we're going to look at tonight, these seven of them, they can be applied to your life personally. As you endeavor to walk faithfully with the Lord, you can apply these principles in your personal devotion to the Lord. Maybe in your family life, in your family culture, you, you, you want to uh, see the Lord move in a greater way. Well, you can apply these principles to your family life. Maybe you uh, are, are in a workplace where People don't love the Lord. People don't serve the Lord. You can apply these principles there as well to see the Lord move in those places. Maybe you're a new Christian. You're just coming into the faith. These principles apply to your life as well as you are endeavoring to build your life afresh on the word of God. And so as we look at these principles of restoring worship, of, of reformation, Notice here that you can take them and apply them in many different places in your life. And so let's look at the, the beginning here of chapter 1. This um, decree that goes out in ver chapter 1 of verse 1 of Ezra, it says, In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled... Remember, Jeremiah had, had made a promise that after 70 years of exile, God's people would be restored to their land. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Again, the, the heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord, and he turns it whichever way he will. So the proclamation goes this, number two, uh, verse two, thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And in verse uh, 5, it says uh, that whoever the Lord Spirit had stirred are those who decided to go up and to rebuild. As you move into chapter 2, it tells us that the names of the people, the leaders of the people who went to, to go and to rebuild. Some, some names of note are this name in verse 2, Zerubbabel. Can you say Zerubbabel? Zerubbabel. I've never met anybody named Zerubbabel. Maybe one day, that'd be fun. It's a good middle name, if you're looking for a good middle name. 
Nehemiah, I've met some Nehemiahs, you see him there in the list. These names are going to become more prominent as the story continues. But this is the backdrop. The Lord stirs the king of uh, Persia, Cyrus, who's, who's the king of all the kingdoms of the world at that time, puts it in his heart to issue this decree that God's people would be able to go back and to rebuild the temple, that worship would be restored in Jerusalem. Now, I want to give you seven points here tonight as we move through the book of Ezra. I'm going to move through these quickly. And the first I want to draw out from the number of the people that returned. If you look in chapter 2, in verse 64, it says the whole assembly together. This is everybody that returned to rebuild. The whole assembly together was 42,000 360. Besides their male and female servants, of whom there was 7,337. So the total of the people that returned to Jerusalem to rebuild was 50,000 people. 50,000. Now, the, the, the number that had been taken away in exile was much, much, much greater. In the millions of people that had been taken away, had, that had lost what had been theirs through exile. But they had become comfortable over 70 years. They had made a life for themselves. And only 50,000, less than 1%, decide that they are going to come back. And this gives me my first point tonight is that this work of reformation, this work of restoring worship... It is hard work. It is hard work. What was going to be asked of these people was to leave now their lives behind, to leave what they know, to leave what is comfortable, and to go and set up shop in a place, in a city that is destroyed, that is desolate, in a place that is broken down, a place without any walls, a place without any refuge, that they would truly have to trust in God to be their refuge. They would truly have to trust in God that he was going to protect them, that he was going to provide for them. And so this work of, of restoration, this work of reformation, again, we could talk about applying this in many different areas of your life. Maybe you've been away from the Lord and you're returning to the Lord. Maybe there's some things that need to be established in, in your heart, your, your, your walk with the Lord. Only a small percentage of people are going to undertake the task because it's uncomfortable and it requires sacrifice. This work of restoring, this work of reformation, it is hard work. It is not easy. And because of that, most people will never do it. People like to be comfortable, don't we? That's why there's pads on the seats and you're not sitting on cinder blocks here tonight. Right? I mean, we, we, we like our comforts. But the work that God calls us to do in building his kingdom, it is not easy work. It's not comfortable work. It's going to require faith. It's going to require us stepping out into things that when we trust God that we, in our flesh, it says, well, what, what about this? And, and what about that? And, and this could go wrong here. And, and we leave all of that aside to say, no, we will follow and obey God. But it is hard work. The second point I want to draw out for us tonight is from chapter 4. When this people, this group of about 50,000, when they resettle to Jerusalem and they get about building the temple, they've laid the foundation in chapters 3 and now into chapter 4 they begin to build the building. And in verse 1 of chapter 4 it says, now when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin, these are the, the enemies of God's people, when they heard that the returned exiles were building a temple to the Lord, the God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel was the leader of the people. He was, he was the, the, the one who was overseeing the work. 
They approached Zerubbabel and the heads of the father's houses and said to them, let us build with you. For we worship your God as you do. And we have been sacrificing to him ever since the days. And here's a name I can't pronounce. I can't pronounce half the stuff in the Old Testament. Anyway, we've been sacrificing. We've been being faithful here. Here, let us join with you. Let us come in with you. Let us help and do the work together. Now, when they only have 50,000 people and and they only have a, a certain amount of people that can actually do the work, here comes a group of people that says, hey, we want to help. We want to pitch in. Now, on the surface, we say, hey, this looks great, right? Many hands make light work. Let's get more people involved. This will go faster. This will go quicker. Let us rebuild with you because we worship your God like you do. But notice here what they tell them. We see this here in verse 3. You have nothing to do with us in building a house to our God. But we alone will build a house to the Lord, the God of Israel. As King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. These were the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin. These were their enemies who were coming and saying, let us help you. We want to help you. It was a trick. It was a trick. And this is what we need to see from this passage. This second point is that in rebuilding, in restoring, that we cannot, that there can be no compromise with the world. There can be no compromise with the world. If we're going to rebuild, if we're going to have reformation, if we're going to see a restoration of God moving, we cannot compromise with the enemies of God and his people. Now, the enemies of God today are everywhere. We we see the enemies of God literally flying under their own flag today. That there is another ideology, another philosophy. People at war with God. And what we see from Zerubbabel, even as they're being cozied up to, even as they're saying, hey, let us come in, let us help, we can help you, we can make this go faster. He says, no, you have no part in this. There can be no compromise with the world. This reminds me of in Acts chapter 8. If you want to flip over there, you can flip over there quickly, but we're coming back to Ezra. In Acts chapter 8, you'll recall as the gospel is going out that it it goes to the people of Samaria. There's a great revival there. God is pouring out his spirit. And there's a sorcerer there named Simon. And when he sees God pouring out his spirit... He approaches the apostles. In verse 18 of chapter 8, it says, When Simon saw the spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Now, how many people, how many of us would have just been like, Hey, he wants to give us an offering. This is great. We can do more for the kingdom. Now that we have this offering, this is good. We can can start training these people and we we can set up a course where people can be trained in how to impart the Holy Spirit and we can charge them $29.99. We can fund our whole ministry through this. What did the apostles say? Peter said to him, may your silver perish with you Because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity." And Simon answered, pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. 
I, I love that he, this guy wants to give them money and he tells them to repent. <laughs> right? Here we, and, and this is essentially what is happening here in, in Ezra's day. In, in, in their rebuilding with Zerubbabel. Hey, we want to help. We want to pitch in. He says, no, 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 you have no part in this. Here, I want to give you money, Simon says. And he says, repent. For you are in the gall of bitterness and the bond of iniquity. That's quite the rebuke. <laughs> Those are strong words. Listen, what we need to understand is under this point of there can be no compromise with the world is that Satan is subtle. He is so subtle. And when you make the decision to move towards reformation, when you make the decision to move towards rebuilding on the word of God, rebuilding your life, rebuilding your personal life, rebuilding your family life, Satan is going to come and bring opportunities for compromise. Opportunities for compromise that look good on the surface, but they're actually compromises with the world. So as we make this decision, as we decide we're going to step out in faith, though the work will be hard, though it will be at times uncomfortable, we must be on guard against things that look like opportunities but truly are compromises with the world. Moving on to the third point we see back in Ezra chapter 4. The people did not respond well. The enemies of, of God's people did not respond well when they said, you have nothing to do with this. They showed their true colors in that moment. In chapter 4, verses 4, it says, the people of the land then discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build. And they bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. And, and in the reign of Azarius, in the beginning of his reign, they wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. The third point that we need to understand as we endeavor to, to recover, to rebuild, is that there will be opposition. There will be opposition. There will be those who do not like it. There will be those who say, no, we've always done it this way before, or, or, or who do you think that you are, you know, now that you, you've gotten saved, that now you want to live for God? I know who you really are. The enemy will use all kinds of words of op opposition. Notice here, that's what they're using here. They're bribing counselors. They're, they're paying off people to come and to, to sow seeds of discouragement into the people's hearts. Seeds of fear. This is, this is the tactic of the enemy to bring opposition against God uh, moving forward, against God's kingdom being built. They end up writing a letter uh, to, to the king. We don't have time to look at the letter that they wrote the king. But we can see the results of the letter in verse 23. Antaxerxes writes back a letter after he reads this, this, this letter of opposition. And in verse 23 and 24... He sends a letter back that says that they must cease. Now, verse 21 of chapter 4. Therefore, make a decree that these men are made to cease and that this city not be rebuilt. In verse 23, we see the Jews and at Jerusalem by force were made to stop. Verse 24 says, Then the work on the house of God that is in Jerusalem stopped, and it ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Listen, we, have to, we just have to know and expect that, listen, there's going to be opposition. If I'm going to stand for God, if I'm going to stand for his kingdom, if I'm going to stand for what's right, if I'm going to stand for righteousness and justice and truth and the cross, there's going to be opposition. We shouldn't be blindsided by it. We shouldn't be surprised by it. 
We shouldn't be surprised about where it comes from in our life. It's not easy work. It requires us to be faithful to the Lord without compromise, but it will be opposed. Listen, if you, if you endeavor to live for the Lord, it's going to be a fight in this world. It's going to be a fight. This is why Paul talks about putting on the armor of God. This is why he doesn't talk about, you know, putting on the leisure suit of God, you know? Put on the beach clothes of God. No, it is dress for battle, Paul is saying. If you're going to live for Christ, dress for battle. Because every day is going to be a fight. Holiness is a fight. Purity is a fight. Devotion to God and his word is a fight. It is a spiritual battle that will be opposed I'm telling you this because I don't want you to grow weary when you face the opposition. They stopped building the temple. They stopped building the temple for 15 years they stopped. They should have never stopped. But they did. Because they were opposed. Listen, we will be opposed. There will be opposition. There will be a fight. But number four... Let's move on uh, to number four, looking at chapter five, verse one. After 15 years, it says, now the prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Ido, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. God began to stir up these, these prophetic witness, this prophetic voice to go and to, to speak his word to his people, to tell them to rebuild, to tell them to, to get going again. We can see a, a, an account of that prophetic utterance if, if you can flip over to Zechariah with me, if you can find it. It's in the Minor Prophets. Zechariah. It says that the prophets Zechariah and Haggai were the ones who were who were prophesying. If you go to Zechariah chapter four, it gives us an example of the prophetic word that that they were giving to the leaders there. Zechariah chapter four, verse six. This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain, before Zerubbabel you shall become a plain? And he shall bring forward the top stone amid shouts of grace, grace to it. Verse 8 says, The word of the Lord came to me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house, and his, his hands shall also complete it. Then you will know that the word of the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. For whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice and shall see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. God begins to send his prophets to declare to them his word. That's the fourth point tonight as they overcame the opposition by the word of God. By the word of God. It was the word of God spoken by the prophets that moved them, moved them back to action, moved them back to obedience. We see back in Ezra chapter 5 verse 2, after receiving these prophetic witnesses, after receiving the word of God, that Zerubbabel arose and began to rebuild the house of God that is in Jerusalem And the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. The prophets encouraging them, speaking the word of God. After the temple is built, it gives us this uh, summary in Ezra chapter 6, verse 14. It says, and the elders of the Jews built and prospered 
through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Ido. They finished building their they finished their building by the decree of of the God of Israel and by the decree of Cyrus and Darius and Antaxerxes, king of Persia. And this house was finished on the third day of the month of Adar. They overcame by the word of God. The prophets came and said, look, there's been opposition. Look, there's been a decree by the king, but it's not by might and it's not by power. It's by my spirit, says the Lord. When we face opposition, what we need to do is get back to the word of God. Take the word of God in our hands. Hide it in our hearts. This word of God that was declared to them, it encouraged them. It built them up. It strengthened them. It restored their faith in God because faith truly does come by hearing and hearing by the word of God. There is nothing, there is nothing more powerful than obedience to the word of God in faith. If you will in faith step out in obedience to the word of God in whatever area, in whatever sphere of life we're talking about, you will be amazed at the power of God that is unleashed. They begun, begun to come and prophesy. They, they came and, and were saying, you must rebuild. Now there was a decree by the king that said they couldn't. So now what do we do? We have the king telling us one thing and we have God telling us another. What do we do in situations like that? We go with the word of God, don't we? Because there is an authority over the king and that is God who is seated in heaven. One of my favorite verses has become Revelation 1 verse 5 which says that Jesus Christ is the ruler of the kings of the earth. He is the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords. And his word is supreme. His word reigns supreme. There is an authority over the king. All of the questions that could be, uh, you know, all of the questions that would arise, well, if we start rebuilding, is he gonna send his army? If we start rebuilding, are we gonna lack supply? If we start rebuilding, what's it gonna cost us? What will be the price? What about this? What about that? And all of the, the likewise questions can arise in your heart. Well, if I step out in faith to pull my kids out of public school and put them in a Christian school, will I be able to afford it? Will I be able to pay it? If I, if I start doing devotions in my family, will my kids receive it? If, if I start living for Christ at work and, and I start shining my light for them, what will happen? What's going to happen to me? But listen, we, we serve a God that parts the seas, amen? We serve a God that, that in, in our faith, in the Christian faith, the barren give birth. We serve a God that stops the mouth of lions, in, our, in the Christian faith, giants fall. In our, the Christian faith, the tombs are emptied. We serve a God who, who has unlimited power and unlimited resources. And nothing can stand in opposition to his word when his people march forward in faith. But when his people are afraid, when his people listen to the voice of the accusers, that's when the enemy wreaks havoc. We need to be people who step out in faith, in obedience to the word of God and let God move on our behalf. Number five, we see this in chapter six, verses six through 10. When they start rebuilding the people, the opposition in the land, they send another letter to the new king, King Darius, who's there. They said, hey, there, there's a decree that said they had to stop building this temple. They'll be rebuilding it again. You better, you better send some people here. You better figure this out. You better stop them. So King Darius goes in chapter six and he searches the archives. What he ends up finding is 
King Cyrus's decree that says, send them back to rebuild the temple. So King Darius sends a letter to the, the opposition and says, we see this in chapter 6, 6 through 10. He sends, he sends this letter to the opposition. He tells them, keep away from these people. Let the work of the house of God alone. Let the governor of the Jews and the elders of the Jews rebuild this house of God on this site. Moreover, I make a decree regarding what you shall do for the elders of the Jews for rebuilding the house of this God. The cost is to be paid to these men in full and without delay from the royal revenue, the tribute of the province from beyond the river, and whatever is needed. I love that. Whatever is needed. Bulls, rams, sheep for burnt offerings to the God of heaven, salt and wine and oil as the priests at Jerusalem require it, that it be given to them day by day without fail. Number five, rebuilding worship invites God's favor. It invites the favor of God. When the search was made, they found the original decree and then King Darius says, no, let them rebuild and moreover, you guys pay for it. You guys supply it. You guys cut the checks. You guys bring the oxen for the sacrifice. When we step out in faith, obeying God, we can expect to see the favor of God. God made every provision for them to complete the task, to do what he had asked them to do. Why would God ask them to rebuild the temple and then not supply? That doesn't make any sense. We need to know that if we will step out in faith and believe God, that he will make a way. That's his job. Our job is to simply be obedient to his word. And so God makes the provision for the task to be completed, and it is completed. The temple is rebuilt. We see this in chapter 6. We see that they celebrate Passover. The first Passover that had been kept in Two generations in over 70 years, they celebrate this Passover. And then there's a period of time that goes by in the book of Ezra. Between chapter 6 and 7, there's a period of 60 years that transpires. And this is where Ezra enters into the scene. Ezra was a scribe a priestly scribe. He was a Levite, descended from Aaron. He was a Levite, a scribe. He knew the law of God. And he was still remaining in Babylon. He had grown up there. It had been 60 years since God's people returned and rebuilt the house. But the Lord puts it on his heart as he knew the word of God to return to the people of God to teach them the law of God. And so he, he prays and intercedes and God gives him favor and grants him to go and he is well supplied by the king to go and to teach the people the word of God, the law of God, the Torah, the commandments. And when Ezra gets there, he is appalled at what he sees because God's people had been walking in unfaithfulness to him. Though they had rebuilt the temple and though they had restored worship, they had made compromises in their personal lives. And when Ezra returns and he sees this, he is heartbroken at what he sees. And the sin that they were committing, we see in chapter 9, is that the, the people led by the, their leaders, their, their chief elders and priests, had intermarried with the enemies of God. And they had married idolaters. They had married people who didn't love and serve Yahweh, the one true God. And through this multi-generational bringing in of 
people who did not love and serve God, the hearts of God's people have grown cold and are being turned away from God once again. We read about this in chapter 9, and it says, chapter 9, verse 1, that the peoples of Israel and the priests and the Levites had not separated themselves from the people of the lands with their abominations. From the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they have taken some of their daughters to be wives for themselves and for their sons, so that their offspring has mixed itself with the peoples of the land. And in this faithlessness, the hand of the officials and chief men has been foremost. And number six, we see that faithfulness in one area does not make up for compromise in another. You see, they had been very faithful in rebuilding the temple. They had been very faithful in reestablishing worship. But they were compromising in their personal lives. They were bringing sin into their lives by marrying outside of the faith. Now, this is not about race. This is not a racial issue. This is a religious issue. It's that they were marrying people who did not love and serve God. And so they were, how how can you raise up a generation that loves and serves God when you have one person that serves the Lord and one person, one parent that serves Baal? When you have one person that serves the Lord and the other parent serves Yahweh, uh, uh, Molech or something, you, you just, you can't do it. You can't do it. And so that, that offspring is, is being perverted again. And so Ezra comes and he brings again another area of reformation. But oftentimes we are willing to be very faithful to the Lord in one area of our life, thinking that it somehow offsets this area of compromise over here. And that's not how it works at all. Though they had been faithful in rebuilding the temple, though they had been faithful to offer sacrifices and worship to God, they had been unfaithful in their obedience to God, which is the true act of worship. They had the externals, but they were not worshiping God internally through obedience in this area of their life. We go all the way to the very end of Ezra, Ezra chapter 10, verse 44. It says, all these had married. It lists all their names. He calls them out by name. He lists all the people that had married foreign wives. All these had married foreign women. Some of the women had even born children. Number seven, what we need to see is that small compromises with sin, with the world, over time, they take us way off course. You see, when Ezra returned, he didn't find the community of faith that he should have found. He he didn't find that multi-generational people that was loving and serving God. When he returned, he found a bunch of heathen kids running around a bunch of offspring who did not love and serve God because they had mixed again with the people of a different faith. And though it seems small at the beginning, though, though sin always seems like it's, it's not that big a deal, it's just a small compromise here, it's just a small compromise there, over time, it leads us way off course. And so their whole effort, the whole rebuilding effort, their whole reformation effort is in danger of being destroyed because of these small compromises. Solomon puts it this way, that small foxes spoil the vine. Paul puts it this way, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. 
Well, one of the, the chief ways that the enemy keeps God's people bound in sin is through small compromise. Through small compromise. Because it's just a little bit here, it's just a little bit there, it's just a little bit there. But if you're not walking with the Lord in faithfulness and obedience, you're walking away from the Lord. And if you do not come back, if you do not return in repentance over time, you'll find yourself sitting in some sort of disaster, some sort of collapse, some sort of everything falling apart. And you'll say, how in the world did I get here? I used, to, I used to love the Lord. I used to serve the Lord. I used to, to be so passionate about him and about his word. How did I get here? It's not by one giant leap. It's by one small step at a time. This is why we constantly must be walking with the Lord daily. Daily asking him for forgiveness. Daily walking with him in repentance. Daily fighting that fight of holiness. Daily not giving in and compromising with the world. Daily taking up the the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Daily walking in faithfulness and endeavoring to do so in every area of our lives. Not being deceived into thinking that because I'm doing really good and I'm going above and beyond over here, it means I can slack in this area. That's, That's the enemy trying to lead you down a path of compromise, which leads to destruction. But though the enemy came to steal, kill, and destroy, Jesus came that we would have life and life more abundantly. And when we walk with him, when we stay close to him, when we seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, when we step out in faith and obedience in every area of our life, we invite the favor of God. And he gives us the strength that we need to do the the tasks that he's called us to do. Amen? And that we can truly overcome the attacks of the enemy because no weapon formed against us will prosper when we rightly submit our lives in obedience to his word and do so in faith. Amen? I invite you to stand with me this evening. Let's just go before the Lord in prayer. And as we pray tonight, I just want to invite you to ask the Lord, Lord, is there an area in my life where I am walking in compromise? Lord, is there there an area where you have convicted me, but I have not followed your conviction? Lord, is there there something that you've shown me in your word, but I have not put it into practice? This is a, a time, a moment, where we can do business with God. God is so faithful and he's so just. He's so kind and he's so merciful. God is not condemning us. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus but he does call us to walk in faithfulness and obedience. So I invite you just to open your heart to the Lord for him to examine. And as we pray, I would encourage you in in your own heart, in your own words, to just ask the Lord for forgiveness, ask the Lord for help, and know that he is through his word going to give you the power and the strength to overcome. Father, we just thank you for your word tonight. We thank you that it is that lamp to our feet and light to our path. It it gives us instruction. It gives us direction. Lord, we want to be a people that is faithful to you. Lord, we want to be a people that in our day that we rebuild. Lord, that we lay the foundations, that, that we build upon them to see true worship restored 
in your church, in our homes, in our family. Lord, that we would, would raise up a, another generation and another generation that, that would love you and that would serve you. Lord, that we would see you moving in, in our, our lives, in our families, Lord, where we work by your spirit. Lord, that your kingdom would come and that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven, in San Antonio as it is in heaven, in Destiny Church as it is in heaven, in our lives as it is in heaven. Lord, your rule and your reign extended to to every single area, saturating every fiber of our life. Lord, if there's any place in our heart that we're not submitted to you as our king, as our Lord, as our Savior, Lord, that you would show that to us now and that you would help us through the power of your word to to lay that to rest in our life that we could walk in the resurrection power, Lord, that you give us. Lord, that you would help us to to extend your kingdom, to extend your, your rule, to extend your power, to extend your touch. Lord, wherever we are, wherever you have us planted, Lord, that our lives would be uh, uh, an offering unto you, a, a true act of worship as we walk in faithfulness and obedience. Lord, I thank you for those who have gathered here tonight. I pray that you would move in our lives together. Lord, as we go out from this place to face the week ahead, you send us out to be lights in the world. You send us out, Lord, to be salt in the world. You send us out as missionaries to enter into your harvest field. Lord, I pray this week that you would give us opportunities to share the gospel, to share the light, to share your love. You would give us opportunities to to love by serving, to love by giving, to love by uh, ministering, to love by the words that we can speak. Lord, that you would cause our efforts to be fruitful as we step out in faith that we invite your favor and your blessing. Lord, we thank you that we are a blessed people and that we walk in your blessing every single day. We pray that you would help us to extend your blessing to this world. In Jesus' name we pray, amen, amen. Let's give the Lord a hand clap tonight.